Revelation 2, 8-11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews, but they are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Good morning. We're going to be finishing up today. Uh, two weeks ago, we uh, we jumped in. And by the way, um, if you're... Uh, if it's your first time with us. My name's Mitch uh, Jolly. I'm a teaching pastor here at Three Rivers, and um, and uh, last week it was amazingly cool to have uh, our own flesh and blood home uh, to tell us of the good work that God is doing through you and for us together as we work together among one of the over six thousand unreached people groups on the face of the planet, and uh, and so. It's apt that after we uh, hear, you hear this a lot anyway, I mean, it's not like we keep this away, we, we talk an awful lot about the, our work overseas, uh, but uh, we started in the church at Smyrna, and the, the role of suffering in the life of the Christian, the life of the church, this is the suffering church, and, uh, and, and so we started on that a couple of weeks ago, and, and about a quarter of the way through, I needed to stop because we're close to like 40, 45 in, and I'm a quarter of the way through. And so for your sake and mine and for your capacity to take what was coming, we needed to stop. And so we're going to plow on through today um, and, and because let me reiterate why this is vital, why this is radically, radically important. It is so, so vital, and I said this two weeks ago, I'm going to say it again today by way of introduction. The, the Father has a way of preparing His people for what's coming. He just does that. And it is vital that you be here, um, not because it's a legalistic mandate, but because as the examples we've seen over the past three weeks of the, the things that the Father has brought to us to equip us, that have then the next morning or the next week blown a gust of a storm into our lives, and, and, and He prepared us for it. And so when we're present together in this environment where, where we come together and we open His Word together, he, he equips us. And that's just thinking, cool. And so your presence here is vital, and, 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 and you never know when He's going to equip us. And I said two weeks ago, I'm going to say again today, um, no doubt, uh, we can't run from suffering. Um, you can't, now let me, let me back up, let me retract that statement. You can run, you can't hide, okay? Corporately, we could run from suffering by doing nice, easy, internal services for each other and call those ministry, you know? And, or even go so far as to uh, call some weak evangelistic outreach through small groups, call that missions and we may run from suffering in such a fashion, but when you, when you take the tact that we have um, in God's grace, not because we're better or, or we're more strategically sound, but because of the calling of the, the gospel. I mean, it's clear, go make disciples of every nation. That's, the mission statement couldn't be more clear. I mean, you, you don't need a Greek 
Uh, you don't need a master's degree in theology, biblical languages, such as I have, to make sense of that. That was, that was given to fishermen and shepherds and plumbers and electricians and, and whoever to, to, to see clearly the mission. And so when you, when you put yourself inside Jesus' mandate to make disciples of the nations, you set yourself up for suffering. I mean, we can't follow the one who went to the cross and bypass the cross. As a matter of fact, the invitation is to come and know Him in the power of His resurrection and in the fellowship of His sufferings. That vaguely sounds biblical, doesn't it? And so we can't bypass that. So if we're going to do the mission, we can't afford to be caught unprepared so that when the difficulty comes, we go, what happened? This this is not the way it was supposed to go. No, it is. It's supposed to go that way. And, and we, I believe in God's grace, have over our years together been equipping you for that. But as we've studied through and begun studying through the book of Revelation, we have this church here at Smyrna, which is uh, only two of them that is going to be addressed here, uh, didn't receive any negative feedback. And Smyrna is one of them. But Jesus is preparing them and he has been equipping them. And, and, and very quick recap, we hit that first week that... Jesus suffered first. We, we don't have to sweat that. It's not as though we're suffering first. We, we're not going first. He went first. He suffered for us. And, and, and He is the one who suffered. And He conquered. So therefore, our suffering isn't strange. And it's not weird. And it's not like pioneering. We're just following the King. Who suffered, but He conquered for us. He knows our suffering. He's not unaware. He's the one who will judge the persecutors. He encourages us not to be faint. And where we ended was on point three. Suffering awaits the church on mission. And we hit point A. And that's where we bogged down. So there's where we'll pick up today. Suffering awaits the church on mission, no doubt. If you're going to do the Great Commission, if you're going to apply strategic initiatives from the Great Commission locally, suffering awaits you. Know that. If you want to disengage from difficulty, leave the gospel. But if you're going to be in the gospel, following Christ, difficulty, suffering awaits the church. But point A was this. Suffering is not meaningless. But it is an imitation of Jesus that produces Eternal rewards. Suffering is not meaningless. It is an imitation of the king that will produce eternal rewards. And I want to say this. There is nothing innately about suffering that is redeeming. This this is not an argument that we should suffer for suffering's sake. Because suffering is just great. That's not what we're saying. What we're saying is this, that if suffering comes while doing the work, it is not without meaning and purpose. It is not arbitrary. And it didn't come unfiltered through grace. And that is what provides for us, the people of God, to stay on task and do the mission. We left off in um, the 2 Corinthians chapter 4 passage. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 to 18. And as we came to the end of that passage, uh, if, 
if you want to flip back there, and then we're going to come back to Revelation 2, 8 through 11 to finish up that passage. But I want to finish up this point that Jesus has told them, you are going to suffer. You are suffering and the suffering is going to continue. And we took that and we looked at the passages and I gave you a whole list of passages that talk about the necessity and the purpose behind suffering. In this 2 Corinthians 4, 7 to 18 passage, we we have there in that passage a, an absolute gold mine of joy for those who suffer. I'm going to read it again, and, and I'm going to hit the end of it, um, because I want you to see the, the beautiful worldview that the Scriptures provide us on suffering. He says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. What's this treasure? He talks about in verse 1 to 6, the treasure of the gospel. This good news of who Jesus is as the very image of God come to earth to take on flesh and die in our place for our sin. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down. But we are not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Do not lose heart. It's great to hear one of the greatest sufferers in Scripture say, we don't lose heart. None of us have been shipwrecked and beaten for the gospel. And the one who has has said, we don't lose heart. We take courage. Just listen to those words. There's, there's grace in those words. We, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. The flesh is dying, but my heart is blossoming. That's encouraging. And and, and here's where we left off. For this momentary light affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are un, the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul's talking, he's, he's looking, he's experiencing a whole different plane of vision. Paul is looking beyond what the physical eyes see to, to what the, the spiritual sight given through the gospel now sees. And that is that, that so far beyond the physical life around him, that there is an eternal glory stored up for the people of God that makes these sufferings 
turn to cause him to grow and blossom in his faith, not wither. Let me say it differently. If Paul were looking at life merely with the physical eyes, he may say, my heart withers and God, where are you? But he says, there's an eternal weight of glory. And this outer flesh is wasting away, but internally there's life. You can't say that unless you're looking at something Different than the stripes on your back. Or what you lost. Are you tracking with that at all? Are you confused? I mean, this dude's looking on a different plane. He's living in a different world. I like the biblical languages. Because they, they say things in English we don't get to do real well. English is a boring language. When he says that this affliction, this momentary light affliction is preparing an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. This is a fun construction in Greek. First of all, an eternal weight of glory. There's no framework for that. Paul doesn't define that anywhere. It's just, it's eternal. It's beyond the physical flesh. It's, it's beyond life and death. It's, it's eternal. It's, it's the realm Beyond the, the physical that's all joined together there. It's, it's eternal. It's, it's glory. It's weight. That's what glory means, by the way. This Bible word glory means weight. And he adds eternal weight of glory. The eternal weighty weightiness of weight. That, that this weighty God, this awesome, holy, majestic King who would take on flesh and die for sin. There's an eternal Weighty, weighty, weightiness of this God that is awaiting us. And it makes His affliction that we look at and go, Oh my gosh, it makes Him say it's a momentary light thing. And He goes so far as to say this eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. This is amazing. Literally, I'm going to play Greek with you for a second. It is hyperbole. Does that word sound familiar to you? We call it hyperbole. It's a Greek word, transliterated straight into English. Hyperbole, ice, hyperbole. Hyperbole into hyperbole. We translate it beyond all comparison. And beyond all comparison doesn't do it justice. There's no other way to translate it. That's perfectly fine. But English can't do that justice. So he says there's an eternal weight of glory, hyperbole. Hyperbole into hyperbole for us. In other words, he's blowing up the superlative. He's giving you as big a superlative as he can make in his language. Hyperbole, hyperbole. And, and the word means to shoot beyond. That's what hyperbole means. Greek means to shoot beyond. And we take it, in other words, if you're hyperbolic or using hyperbole, you go beyond the illustration as an illustrative point to show you that this is really big deal. Well, he doesn't just use hyperbole once, he uses it twice. Hyperbole into hyperbole. In other words, this eternal weight of glory is so radically amazing that my beating at their hands is light. We look at that and go, this guy is sadistic. And I say, no, he's seen Jesus. He's seen the king. 
so that his stripes and the shipwrecking and the being bitten by snakes and being imprisoned is eh, no big deal. Suffering is only doable when one's sight transcends this world. Suffering will crush the eyes beyond repair that can't see beyond this world. And what the gospel does is give sight to blind eyes. That's, that's the image given in Scripture. That our eyes have been opened. They're not able to really see. Not like, not like see like I'm seeing you, but see reality beyond this life. So that suffering is like, man, beyond here, this may die. It may die right now, but dude, this is nothing. Because have you seen that? This is crazy. I want that. That's why Paul said, I so desire to depart and be with Christ. Because that's far better. But for your sake, I'm convinced I will remain here. But to live as Christ and to die as gain is more Jesus. So I really love to go, but man, he's going to keep me here for you. Suffering has great meaning when eyes see beyond this life. What's interesting is when Paul, I mean, when John is writing to this church at Smyrna, it just so happens that one of the best known early Christians is present when this letter is being read. He's probably sitting in the congregation. His name was Polycarp. Who would later become the bishop of Smyrna. And was martyred in AD 160. Heard that name before? You familiar with him? Early church father Polycarp. Was present as a young fellow hearing this letter read at the church at Smyrna. And he would go on to become the bishop, the elder of the church at Smyrna, and he would be martyred in 8160. Am I familiar with what he said? It's a really famous quote in Christian history. Here's what he said I have served the Lord for 86 years. You can't say what he's about, you're about to hear unless you've seen, seen beyond. I have served him these 86 years and had received and have received only good from him. He's standing ready to die. He said, I've, I've got nothing but good from the king. How could I forsake him? You can't say that unless you've seen the eternal and taste the eternal weight of glory that's hyperbole into hyperbole, shot so far beyond your ability to comprehend that, yeah, kill me, that's fine, this is cool. Do your best. You see, the glory of what is to come can't even be compared to what we see here. It is a tragedy in our day when we avoid difficulty for the sake of holding on to things that rot. This rotting meat is great. I love rotten meat. I love rotten, rusty things. That sounds stupid, doesn't it? 
But that's what we do when we try to hold on to as much as we can get here in avoidance of difficulty because reality, we can't imagine, as C.S. Lewis said, a holiday at the sea. So we're content to stay in the slums and eat mud pies. Because we can't even imagine that there's hyperbole and the hyperbole of glory awaiting the people of God. You see, when you understand and this lands on you, suffering is not a big deal. It's not a big deal. It's, it's, I mean, it's a big deal, but it's like, nah, yeah, whatever. Okay, we got to go. Yeah, I understand they kill Christians there, but dude, reality is the gospel must go. It's a mission. Yeah, I know nobody's fostering kids. I know nobody wants, they want the government to do it. And, and we want to spend, we want to build a bigger building so more people come to our stuff. And so that's what we got to do. It's, and we can't imagine, we can't imagine suffering without this. Ooh, rotten, rotten, rotten. And he's crying out, can't you see? There's glory for you. Come suffer with me. When we see this, it changes suffering. We're not afraid to run into suffering. We're not afraid to run into difficulty. We're not afraid to try and fail. We're not afraid of difficulty, so we go. A quote for you from Dr. David Garland, the author of commentary, the New American Commentary on 2 Corinthians In the New American Commentary series, Dr. Garland says, The incredible eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison outweighs any earthly afflictions and makes them look like a tiny storm in a teacup. Since the persecution affects only the outer nature that is wasting away, it is destined to pass and be replaced by something far more glorious. On earth our afflictions seem never-ending, while the more sublime moments seem to pass by in a flash. Looking at things from the vantage point of God's new eon puts everything, including affliction, in its true perspective. I say amen. Our greatest need today, I said it when we started Revelation, is I believe the overarching intention of the book 37 times the word throne shows up. The heavenly scenes that we see Jesus as he is. And when we do that, when we catch that in this book, we see him as the reigning, conquering, resurrected king, ruling the nations well as he is suffering. Just, yeah, it's for my good. He's working for my good. Let's go. Let's go. Let's do it. Let's roll. Suffering has great meaning for the people of God. B, under point number three. Suffering can be brief or it can be protracted. Here, the church at Smyrna, Revelation 2, 8 through 11. Here Jesus says, verse 10, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Don't fear it. This is a side note. Jesus told us not to fear. And he wouldn't tell us not to fear if there wasn't a way to not fear. And buried here in this book is that intention that when we see him and we know and we understand and we've got that eternal perspective of the weight of glory, there's no need to fear. So he says, don't fear. Don't fear. Look, behold, good Bible word, behold, look. The devil is about to throw some of you into prison. That you may be tested. 
and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Here the Lord says that they're going to be tested for ten days. In the Bible, ten days is significant toward defining a brief time. You take a look at Genesis twenty four fifty five, Acts twenty five six, and there are several other passages where this time of ten days signifies and is significant toward us understanding that this is intended to mean a brief time. In other words, Jesus isn't telling them, now for ten days you're going to be in prison. It is for a brief time. Some of you are going to be put in prison. Now what's interesting is from God's perspective, brief. You know? Because when, when, when Jesus, if he says brief to me, I'm thinking like three hours. Three, three hours. We're good. Three hours. Or just, hey, ten days is great in comparison to a month. But he doesn't give them this time. He, it, it, it's intended for them to understand for a brief time. For this time, you're going to be put in prison. You're going to be tested. Suffering may be brief from our perspective or it may be protracted. It is brief from the perspective of God and eternity and the accomplishing of His purposes in us and outside of us. In other words, we can never go into suffering going, it's going to be over in a day. It may be a lifetime of suffering. But when you take a lifetime of suffering and you compare it to the eternal Wait of glory, waiting for his people. It's brief. It's brief. You see, we have a worldview conflict, and often we, we want brief to mean when I think brief is, and that's because we're viewing brief from the perspective of time and space. We can't view life in the gospel simply from time and space. We have to have this eternal weight of glory in mind where we look at all of eternity. And when we can see that through the grace of God, brief, whether it be a lifetime, ten days, three weeks, who knows how long it's brief. Because that is far better. So brief suffering may be, for some of us, from the perspective of time, or it may be protracted. But we can't put on God a timetable of suffering. See, suffering for doing good can come from the hand of the evil one, but not free from the mediated grace of God who is good. Suffering for doing good can come from the hand of the evil one, but not free from the mediated grace of God who is good. Now, remember I said two weeks ago, that if you suffer because you're a moron, that's your fault. That's a different sermon. But if you suffer for doing good, doing gospel work, we have this assurance that even if it is directly from the hands of the evil one, it is not free from the mediated grace of God. Satan is not a co-equal with God and he does not have free reign over the people of God. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you already belong to him. You haven't been redeemed. You're not included in what I'm saying here. If you are a follower of Jesus, 
Jesus owns you. And listen to what he says in John 10 and 27 to 30 about you. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Jesus doesn't speak idle words. And no one, and I make an exegetical assumption, when Jesus says no one, he includes principalities, powers, rulers of wickedness in the heavenly places, kings. No one will snatch them out of my hand. That's kind of comforting, isn't it? My Father, who has given them to me, If you belong to Jesus, it's because the Father gave you to the Son as a gift. That's another sermon. It's there for you to read. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Father gave them to me. I'm holding them tight. He's also holding them. Because we're one. Yet we're two. Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God, three distinct persons. We got, in other words, we've got them in this iron grasp, and they cannot be snatched from my grace. It's good news, by the way, people. So if suffering comes from the evil one, first, Father has mediated in grace. You stop and think of the imagery. He's got us. And if suffering comes, it's not because I'm floating around at the free reign of the evil one taking pot shots at me. Satan is not a co-equal with God. He's not sovereign. He's not all-knowing. He's a creature. We're held in the hands of the Father. And whatever suffering comes my way, whether it be at the hands of the evil one directly, I am in the clutches of my king. And I am surrounded by his grace. Two, we can't be taken from his hand. It's impossible. Not possible. Three, suffering then has immense purpose beyond what you and I could ever imagine. If He allows me to suffer while in His hand, I am being upheld by His hand. Two, He's got a good reason. Whether I ever know it or not, my knowledge of the reason is irrelevant to the point. He doesn't need me to know to accomplish His purposes. Let's throw a passage on you that will blow your mind. Job chapter 1. Some of us, we have experiences in life that make this beautiful. Some of us perhaps have not had experiences in life that this is unintelligible to your ears. And what I can't do is make it sound beautiful to your ears. Only the Spirit of God can apply what I'm about to say to you. 
If you have suffering in your past or you are in suffering, difficulty has come at you. You're going to hear in this passage the most glorious, wonderful thing your ears could ever hear. Some of you, this will push you to levels that you didn't want to go with God. And so before I even read the text, I'm going to remind you our view of Scripture. I believe in verbal, plenary inspiration. Verbal, the very words of the Bible are inspired, not just concepts. Not just concepts. So that you can pick and choose the concepts you like and then throw the others away. The very words of Scripture are inspired. Plenary. Every part of the Bible. All of it that has been spoken. Not just the New Testament. All of it. Including Leviticus. Inspiration. It's given by God. It is breathed out by the Spirit of God. If you don't believe verbal plenary inspiration, then you may be in the wrong place anyway. So, sorry. You believe the Scriptures are there as the instruction manual for all things, for knowledge of the Gospel, for living life. And all of its words are inspired, every part of it, Genesis to Revelation. And it is given by God. And there's no error in it. It does not affirm anything contrary to fact. Okay? There with me? Got it? Here we go. Job 1, 20-22. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. Is that what you do when your children die? And your cattle's gone? And your barns are destroyed? This isn't, I came home, I lost my job. That's, this is not, I lost my job. This goes far beyond what probably many of us in this room could even imagine losing. You, you tracking with that? You familiar? He's, it's all gone. All of it. And he fell on the ground and he worshipped. I think Job's seen something. <laughs> He's seen something. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And we, I want to argue with him. Job, didn't you read the first chapter? And I can hear Job in eternity going, I wrote it! Yes! He's going to have a Saturday Night Live thing for me at some point. Jolly, I wrote it, dude. I'm well aware of what I wrote. But Job, didn't you see it was Satan that did it? It was Satan who was coming and bringing hell on your life. And it's almost as if he anticipated my question. Because in verse 2, in all this, Job did not sin. Or charge God with wrong. It was no sin for Job to say what he just said. Do you get that? Do you understand the magnitude of that? It was no sin for Job to go. Even if Satan's hands touched all of my stuff. The Father mediated it in grace. And I will put it on Him. Because my Redeemer lives. 
You can't live life without that worldview. Or you will curse God and walk away when it gets hard. But when you can stand and say, even if the evil one does it, my Redeemer lives and it's filtered through His grace and I will charge it to His account. He is the one who brings this upon me. Whether He uses the dog on the leash, Satan, or any other means, my Redeemer rules my world. That's the only way you can worship when life falls apart. Is to look past the hands that caused the difficulty to the one that allowed them in in the first place. You can't say that in too many places, but you don't pay me, so... Just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. That's not entirely true. Um, it's not entirely true. I hyperbolized a little bit. My point is, I, I don't want you to be slapped around when difficulty comes. I don't want you to say, well, God, where are you? Why are you absent? He's gone nowhere. He's got you in his hand, his firm grip. And if difficulty strikes, I worship. You've given, you've taken away. I think it's interesting. We want to give Satan more play than he's due. We want to somehow make him God. And I find in our fallen capacity, I find it interesting that what he was seeking to accomplish in the garden, he often gets done in us. As we want to elevate him to God status. We want to give him some praise. Look at the work of his hands. Job doesn't play the game. He didn't go, look at what Satan did. Satan, 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 Satan. Satan. No. Lord, I worship. Unless you think it was just an error on his part. He repeats himself. Job chapter 2 verse 10. His wife has arisen. Now he's got boils all over him. He's sitting in the hot ashes, scraping the boils on his body with broken pieces of pottery. Gross. Gross. She says, you still, what, you're still holding to your integrity? Curse God and die. Job is not about Job, by the way. The point of Job is not Job. Though he has the title of the book, the point is not Job. The point is the work of the gospel. God is exalted as the God of the universe. God is the main character in Job, just so you know. Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. There's no sin for Job to say what he just said. You've got to wrestle with that. We don't like hard texts because they don't, they don't speak these on Way FM as the word of the day. <laughs> not going to get that. Okay? But it's Bible. It's Scripture, and it's the foundation off of which you can only live life if you're going to do the gospel. I don't want you shaken. Because if you're going to engage in the life of this church, and you're going to get involved in young moms, you're going to get involved in buddy break, you're going to get involved in the work in our unreached people group, you're going to get involved in giving. It's going to get messy. People are going to die. They already have. They will continue. It may be one of us. It may be who you saw last week when he returns. You may lose all of your finances. 
You may get thrown under the bus. You may get stepped on, spoken evil of. What are you going to do? God, where did you go? You're going to fall down and say, I'm coming after you, Jesus, because you're better than life. I don't have anything else. John 6. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. And the crowds departed and they went away from Jesus. And he turned to the twelve. You know the story? Do you want to go too? I think think there's conversion in Peter. So many places. Grace where God just does a little more work of regenerating in his heart. I think this is one of them. And Peter goes, where else are we going to go? You have the words of life. That's how we need to, that's how we got to respond. Everybody else is walking away. Nobody else engages. And you're left alone. You want to leave too? I want our response to be, you've got life. Eternal weight of glory. Hyperbole, ice hyperbole. No, I don't want to go. I want to stay. Because there's life here. It's life. Suffering can take many forms. Sickness. I have no doubt that often sickness hits God's people probably more than it does people who aren't God's people. I have no way to prove that. I've never done a statistic. Have you ever just notice? How it seems like we fight sickness. I know my, we fight sickness in my house incessantly. And I'm not saying that's always passive in nature at coming at us. I'm just saying sometimes sickness is suffering. Whether it be mild things that you get over, but just always standing in the way. Persecution. Whether it be in the form of severe physical consequences for propagating the gospel or just marginalization because you take a stand on truth. Perhaps difficult situations as a leader. You're put in a position where you have to stand alone and make hard statements and they hate you for it. Interpersonal conflict. Natural results of the fall. Just watching your loved ones die of cancer. That's suffering. There's nothing pleasant about that. Marginalization again. Mischaracterization. People taking things you say and obviously mischaracterizing them. Perseverance against sin. By the way, that's suffering. And if you've persevered against sin, you know what I mean. When you lay down to sin, that's... Really? See what you mean? But when you say no, 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 and you the full fury of temptation whips against the very fiber of your being. That's suffering. Suffering takes many forms, but it is not without purpose. He's working for our good. And we know that in all things, He works together for the good. Those who love and call according to purpose. The faithful and suffering receive the awesome reward of life. He says here in verse 10 and 11, Revelation 2, verse 10 and 11, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. 
He says you persevere. Stay faithful. You receive the crown of life. Now I have a particular opinion. There are two schools here. I'm going to give you my opinion. First, I'll tell you the other school. In glory, you get crowns that you wear on your head. Physical crowns. I don't take this to be a physical crown. I think in the, to go totally nerdy on you for a second, it's called the genitive of apposition. The little genitive is the of, of, you know, we use the word of, that's genitive form grammatically. Apposition means uh, defining, the genitive of definition. In other words, when you put two nouns together and connect them with an of in Greek, sometimes you're defining the two words, though you use two separate words. You're using two separate words to speak one definition. In other words, this is the other school. The crown is life. Life is the crown. The image here is that in the games, when one competed, if they won, they got a wreath, a crown that they wore. He says the crown of life. Now that could either be something that sits on your head and it's got the word life written on it, in Greek or Hebrew or English or whatever you, I don't, maybe we speak them all in the kingdom, I don't know. But, or my hunch is that grammatically the crown is life. In other words, you, you persevere, this eternal weight of glory is yours forever. Life, life, full life. Full knowledge of God. Jesus defines eternal life in John 17, 1-3 as knowing God in Jesus Christ whom He said. We will know Him fully. That's kind of jacked, by the way. Like, there, I really want to know more of Him. And I will. And the cool thing is, I'll never sound the depth of His character forever and ever and ever. I'll still be getting to know this awesome Creator. That's what we get. We get to know God. We get to live with no consequences from the fall impeding life anymore. It's kind of exciting to think about, isn't it? That all the things we know as barriers now are gone. It's even hard to imagine that. Hyperbole. Ice hyperbole. But he promises though, and this is the stark conclusion, The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. He's going to define the second death later in the book. And that second death is where those who refuse to repent and believe the gospel are cast in the lake of fire forever, conscious torment in hell with Satan and his angels. He says, you, you stay and you persevere and you fight through because Jesus is better than life and the second death never Gets close to you. Flip side of that coin is. If you determine that the rotten meat of life. Is better than the eternal weight of glory. You have a second death waiting for, for you. That you will never recover from. It's a stark warning. It's a very stark warning. And I think it's apt to end there. Because that's where Jesus ends this letter. So here's my invitation to you. Love Him. Follow Him. Run to Him because He's better than life. But if you've never ran to Him, if He isn't your joy and your crown, if He isn't the purpose for which you exist, then I say to you, run to Him. Because what awaits you is what Jesus defined as Gehenna. 
the valley of Hinnom, translated hell, and it's not a pretty picture. But he stands with open hands and he says, life, life, eternal weight of glory. So my question to you is, do you love him like that? If you do, revel in him, enjoy him. Because there is purpose in every single bit of suffering there is. Continue to run him. Run him. Continue to love him. Continue to walk with him. Continue to fellowship with him. And enjoy life. If you've never come to him, run to him now. Through the gospel, the person and work of Jesus Christ. And if you have questions about that, if you want to know who is Jesus, how can I believe, I'll be standing in the back and you can come talk to me. I'd be glad to talk to you about that. But for those of you who love Jesus, this is our time to revel in Him more and enjoy Him more, knowing that our suffering is not without purpose. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to respond in song. Jesus, um, I pray this morning that You would Bring great glory to your name. I want to specifically ask you to cause your people to persevere and enjoy walking with you even if it is in the middle of harsh difficulty. Father, I ask that you would lift our eyes from our circumstances and ourselves to see a glimpse of this eternal weight of glory that is far beyond what we could even fathom and thus mediate suffering for us. Whether we're in it, about to go into it, or coming out of it, I pray, Father, that you would mediate your grace to us, your people. Father, I even I have no doubt that perhaps there's some who've been around the name Jesus for many years, but the gospel maybe has landed fresh this morning as we've taken the elements. Or maybe they've been exposed to a taste that they've never tasted before and want more. I pray that you would move on that heart and regenerate, resuscitate that dead heart to life that they may see and savor Jesus Christ. Repent and believe and be forever transformed and receive a new heart. You take out a cold dead heart and put a new one in so that they would want to love you and live. Those two things I beg you for today, Father. Jesus, in that, be exalted, be lifted high, be made much of this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.